Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Christmas day in which your people throughout the world gather to celebrate the birth of your Son, the precious gift and salvation that you have bestowed upon us through him. We thank you that we can sing praises to you for what you have done in light of the incarnation of Jesus, that the Son of God clothed himself in humanity, humbled himself and became mortal so that we might become immortal. And I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on this here this morning from your word, that you would stir our hearts to marvel at the wonder that is Christ and all that you have done for us through him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been, um, over the last four Sundays, reflecting on different themes of Advent. The first week we looked at hope, and then peace, and then joy, and then last week we looked at love. And all I want to do this morning is give an overview of these four themes, and the significance and importance of these themes to Christianity, and those who identify as followers of Jesus, and particularly to the season of Advent and Christmas. All four themes are captured in the Christmas story. The very first Sunday, we looked at the theme of hope. Christmas and the season of Advent is fundamentally about hope. This idea of confident expectation. We know there are different kinds of hope. There is uh, wishful thinking, like um, I'm hopeful that I will win the lottery. Um, I'm not hopeful because I don't play the lottery and neither should you. But this hope, this wishful thinking lacks confidence because there's nothing to really place your confidence in except in the possibility of so-called pure luck. But then there is hope that has a level of confidence to it. For example, I have, a, I have a confident expectation that Gracie will not leave me because not only has she given me her word, but she has shown her word to be trustworthy. Her character has given me a confident hope that we will be married until death do us part. But even this confidence is limited. Because as trustworthy as Gracie is, she can break my trust and I can break her trust. I'm confident that she won't, but we humans, because of sin, don't always keep our word. We change. And sometimes we change for the worst. But Christian hope is not limited in regards to its confidence, because it rests upon God, who is incapable of breaking his word and incapable of changing. Christian hope is confident expectation because it rests upon a God who does not lie and does not change. And what he says he will do, he does. What he says he will do always comes to pass. God does not break his word. In fact, he cannot break his word 
because he cannot lie. He can't do that which is contrary to his own nature. He is truth. And therefore, when he says he will do something, he will bring it to pass. This is why Herman Baving says, he, that is God, cannot, cannot abandon his people because he has bound his own name. Really, he has bound himself and his honor to them in pledge. But why is the story of Christmas about hope? What about this story causes us to have hope? Well, because really, this, the whole story of Christmas is God doing something miraculous that causes people who have no reason for hope to find real meaningful hope. I mean, if you just think about the story itself, the whole thing is drenched in hope. At the time of Jesus' birth, Israel was under the oppression of Rome. They were not a free people. They were under the tyranny and rule of Rome. And part of the message of Christmas is the promise that God will deliver his people from such oppression. You see this in Luke chapter 1, both in Mary's song of praise and in Zechariah's prophecy, that is John the Baptist's father. In Luke 1, 46-55, we have recorded for us Mary's song of praise in response to the news she heard from the angel concerning the birth of her child. And this is what we read. The whole song is immersed in hope. Listen to these words from verse 46 to 55 of Luke 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and in his mercy, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you see how full the song is with the idea of hope? She rejoices in God because he has exalted the humble and has humiliated the exalted. And notice how she connects it to the promise of God's word. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, her hope-filled confidence rests in God's promise to Abraham and his offspring forever that he would deliver his people from oppression. In other words, her hope rests in the fact that God keeps his promises. You see the same theme in Zechariah's prayer in verses 68 to 79, where Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. There it is again. He spoke, right? That we should be saved 
from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, once again, the focus is oppression, deliverance from our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, that is John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you see how soaked these prayers are? In hope. Israel at the time longed for deliverance from their enemies. And both these prayers capture the hope that Israel that Israel had rested in God's promise to deliver. But the story of Christmas is more than just deliverance from one's enemies. And you see this in these prayers. Yes, there is hope that God will deliver his people from their enemies, but there is this greater hope that God will deliver his own people from their sins. In one sense, you could say it's always God delivering his people from their enemies, but there are different kinds of enemies. Rome is but an image of a far superior enemy. You see, the scriptures tell us that our greatest enemies are not some people or nation. No. Our greatest enemies are sin, death, and the devil. And this is why even in Zechariah's song, there is deeper meaning than just deliverance from Rome. You see it alluded to in verses 68 to 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. But especially in verses 77 to 79, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, the hope surrounding Christmas is the hope that there can be found true forgiveness of sins and deliverance from death itself. And Jesus is that hope of deliverance. He is the one who will not only deliver us from our oppressors, but he will deliver us from sin and death. He is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. You see, Advent proclaims that no matter how dark the night may get, the sun will still rise. No matter how dark it may be, the candle will not flame out. It will continue to burn, and the darker it becomes, the brighter the flame will be. This is why Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.1 that Jesus Christ is our hope. There is no hope 
without the story of Christmas. There is no true lasting hope without Jesus Christ. And Advent reminds us of the hope we have in Jesus, that God has not abandoned us, but he has sent forth the light of the world to overcome our darkness. There's a beautiful moment um, in the novel, Lord of the Rings, when Sam, Frodo's companion, has a moment where his hope is restored despite all the darkness around him. And this is how Tolkien described it. There peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tower high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And I pray that the beauty of the light of the world would smite our hearts and that hope would return to us that we would know that the shadow is a small and passing thing. The second week, we looked at the theme of peace. Throughout the Christmas story, we see the theme of peace articulated. In Luke 2, when the angels appear to the shepherds, a, a part of their message is that God is bringing peace on the earth with those whom he is well pleased. Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. In Micah 5, 4-5, which Elijah read for us, you have this prophecy of Jesus and the description we're given of what he will do and who he is, and, it, and it's absolutely beautiful. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they, that is his people, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the end of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You see within the human spirit a longing for peace. And yet the human spirit has never truly been able to obtain lasting peace. This idea of, of not only the removal of conflict, but the idea of wholeness, harmony. You see this every time um, there is a major sporting event like the Olympics or like the World Cup that just passed. How many times have we watched these events and have heard the commentators talk about how sports can be the medicine to heal the conflict between nations? And yet it never does. Oh sure, it brings people together for a temporary time to celebrate the magnificence of human skill and ability. But if sports were the solution to peace, we would have obtained it by now. See, in these comments, we see the utter ignorance and naivety of the human race. Ignorance because we don't understand the main reason for all the conflict in our world. And naivety because somehow... They think the solution to our human conflicts is found in humans. All these sporting events, as wonderful and, as, and enjoyable as they can be, and I actually love them, I love sports, but I want us to hear this. There is a spirit of babble at work in all of these events. 
The praise and worship of man and the coming together of humanity, believing that our deliverance can be found in ourselves. But it can't. Our world is plagued with conflict. And not just conflict like war between nations, but conflict in every domain and sphere of life. We have conflict with self. For example, I have no doubt that if I sat down with 95% of you, there would be something about your bodies that you would not be at peace with. We are not at peace with our bodies. We're not at peace with who we are. We have conflict with those we love. We have conflict with creation itself. We have conflict between ethnicities. We could go on and on. And the human spirit seeks to do all that it can to bring about peace, but it never happens and it never will happen. Because the human race neglects the most significant conflict. And that is the conflict between God and mankind. The Bible teaches that all the conflicts we have in our world, in our lives, are fundamentally the result of one major conflict we have. See, our conflict with self, our our conflict with those we love, our our conflict with nature, and our, our conflict between ethnicities and nations is not the root problem. It's rather the fruit of the issue. All this conflict that we experience is the result of the breakdown of the most fundamental relationship, our relationship with God, our Creator. Because we have conflict with God, we have conflict with everything else, including ourselves. And the problem with the sinful human spirit is that it's unwilling to deal with the conflict that God has with us. And so we strive for peace and yet never obtain it. Because you cannot have peace with your fellow man when you do not have peace with your maker. You see, striving for peace in this world without first finding peace with God is like a man bailing his boat full of water while never plugging where the leak is. And the reason we do not have peace with our maker is because we have sinned against our maker and rebelled against his good, just, and holy ways. And therefore, as the scriptures proclaim, we are at enmity with God. But the story of Christmas is God's declaration to the human race that he has done something utterly miraculous to end the conflict. And for us to be restored to right relationship with God. For peace to come upon those with whom he is well pleased. And when right relationship with God happens, so restored relationship can happen in every other sphere of life. You see, Jesus is that miracle that God has provided in order for us to be reconciled to God, our maker. This is what Romans 5.1 tells us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is, declared righteous by faith before God, we are told that we have peace with God, and here's how it came about, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled to God, and this has come about through none other than the Lord Jesus. 
This is why Jesus has become our peace. Through him coming into this world, born of the Virgin Mary, dying for our sins, and rising to new life, Jesus has purchased our peace with God. He has dealt with the conflict we have with God by bearing our sin in our place and therefore removing the hostility of heaven against us. That which was once hostility has become peace through Jesus. As we just sung in Hark the Herald, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Because of Jesus, He is our peace because he is the mediator between man and God. On the third Sunday, we look at the theme of joy. We often think of joy when we think of Christmas. When the angels appeared to the shepherds in Luke 2, they spoke of good news of great joy. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now notice what the reason is for this good news of great joy. There is great joy because a Savior has been born. But what is this Savior saving us from? 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You can trust this. That Christ Jesus came into the world. That's Christmas. Why? To save sinners. Jesus, truly God and truly man, has come into this world to save us from our sins. And this the angel, angels tell us is the good news of great joy. But why? Why is this good news that brings great joy? Well, the only way to answer that is to think through what it is that makes us miserable. We have all experienced sorrow and misery. If you live long enough in this world, one's sorrows will actually only increase. But what's the fundamental reason for our sorrow and misery? We know from human experience that there are different circumstances that bring sorrow and misery. For example, sadness comes or sorrow comes when when someone we love dies. Sorrow comes when we suffer in some capacity or when we experience hurt at the hands of another or when we see another that we love suffer. There are a multitude of human experiences that bring sorrow and misery in life, sickness, betrayal, poverty, death, loneliness, disappointment, conflict. There are a multitude of things we could list off that produce in us sorrow and misery to the point where one can even question, is life worth living? But hear this. None of these things are the fundamental reason for our sorrow and our misery. The fundamental reason is the explanation for why all these other things happen. In other words, sickness, poverty, betrayal, death, loneliness, disappointment, conflict, these are but the leaves on the tree. 
But the tree itself going down to the roots is the fundamental reason. The sorrow-filled leaves of our lives require us to ask, what has birthed these leaves? And the biblical answer to the fundamental reason of our sorrows and misery is sin. That is the capital S sin. Sin is the fundamental reason for our sorrow. Sin is what has produced so much suffering and pain in our world. You see, you may be here this morning and you may be thinking that the fundamental reason for my misery in this life is because of my health or because of this person who hurt me or because I lost my job, but that is just not true. Yes, those things are real and those things produce in us sorrow and sadness, but we must go deeper to understand the fullness of the problem. None of those things would exist if sin didn't exist. The fundamental reason for our sorrow and misery is because this world is drowning under the curse of sin and because we choose to drink the cup of sin and lawlessness. We are miserable because we are sinners. And you can try to address your sorrow and your misery by always cutting off the leaves, but it's not until you get to the root of the problem will you have any hope against misery and sorrow. And this is why the Christmas story is a pronouncement of joy. Because in the Christmas story, Jesus comes to tear the roots of our misery out. He comes to conquer sin and deliver us from our sins. He is not simply in the business of cutting leaves. He's going to rip the tree from its roots. Sin has brought misery, sorrow, shame, and guilt But Jesus has come into our world in order to forgive us of our sins and to rescue us of our sins. This is why so many of the Christmas hymns we sing tie sin and misery together. For example, Joyful Joyful says, Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light. Of day. There is no greater joy in this life than to know that your sins are forgiven. And this is why the story of Christmas is a story about joy. For Christ has entered into our misery, and he has actually borne our sorrows, and he has put to death the root of our misery, sin itself, by nailing it to the cross. And my question for you is do you know? Do you know the joy of having your sins forgiven by the God who made you? The final theme we looked at last week was that of love. You know, it's interesting that when you read the accounts of Jesus' birth, there's actually no mention of the word love. Yet from beginning to end, the Christmas narrative is a demonstration of God's love for fallen humanity. All the language that is used implies God's love as the motivating factor for everything that takes place. You see, both Mary and Zechariah's prayer speak of God's covenant faithfulness, which is another way of saying God's covenant love to his people. Mary's prayer is a prayer in response to God's favor and love towards her. 
God's kindness to allow old righteous Simeon to look upon God's salvation before his death was an act of love. Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us, reveals God's love for us. God has chosen to dwell with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Is this not a revelation of God's love? The name Jesus is also a demonstration of God's love, for it means the Lord saves. As the angel said, told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. See, Jesus is God's plan of salvation for the world, but it's the way in which Jesus will save that uniquely captures the love that God has for us. The incarnation of Jesus, by which the Son of God, fully divine, humbled himself and clothed himself in humanity and took the form of a servant, is a scandalous portrayal of the love of God. The incarnation itself without the cross would be sufficient evidence of God's love for the human race. I mean, think about how radical the incarnation is. The creator became a creature. The eternal was born in time. The infinite became finite. The immortal took on mortality. The king became a servant. The self-sufficient became a helpless Babe, the giver and sustainer of life, was sustained by Mary's breast. The eternal word was unable to speak words. But the scandalous nature of God's love does not end at the birth of Jesus Christ, but rather in his death. As John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved this world, fallen humanity, his image bearers, so much that he gave his only begotten son. And that word gave is loaded with so much meaning. That word gave describes the Christmas story, the Son of God sharing in our humanity in every way, yet without sin. But that word gave also describes Good Friday, where Jesus Christ as the God-man suffered and died for the sins of the world. It was a giving unto death. And the scriptures testify that Jesus dying on the cross for our sins was God's emblem of love towards sinners. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to atone for our sins. See, in that small word, gave, we see the depth of God's love and what true love really looks like. It's a love so foreign from our secular culture. Our society's idea of love is so shallow and empty. But biblical love revealed in Jesus is painful, costly. It hurts. It's sacrificial. It demands perseverance, sweat, and tears. It requires one to do hard and uncomfortable things. 
I've been reminded of this over the last week in seeing Gracie not only give birth, but also care for Eden. There is nothing easy about labor. But there's also nothing easy about all that follows labor. In order for Eden to be born, Gracie must suffer. And she does so because of love for this helpless infant residing within her. In order for Eden to be sustained and to grow, Gracie chooses to suffer again. From breastfeeding, from little sleep, from her body healing from labor. All of this because of her love for her offspring. It's painful. It's a nuisance. Anne Riddler captures this so beautifully in her poem, Christmas and Common Birth, when she says... For any birth makes an inconvenient demand. Like all holy things, it is frequently a nuisance. Capture that? Like all holy things, it is frequently a nuisance, and its needs never end. Yet because of love, a mother meets those inconvenient demands, for they are holy endeavors. Because of love, she continues to meet those needs that never end. This is love. But I want you to notice this. Gracie or any loving mother is willing to suffer horrendously for her her offspring. But Jesus was willing to suffer for his enemies. And this is love that can only be ascribed to to the divine. The Apostle Paul captures this so beautifully in Romans 5, 6 to 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the good, not for the righteous, not for those who have their lives together. No, no. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The Son of God became the Son of Mary to rescue us from our sins all because of his love for us. Paul Gerhardt in his poem, Oh, How Shall I Receive Thee, captures this so well. Love caused thy incarnation. Love brought thee down to me. Thy thirst for my salvation procured my liberty. O love beyond all telling that led thee to embrace, in love all love excelling, our lost and fallen race. Jesus has become our hope, our peace, our joy. And he is the manifestation of God's love toward us. And I hope that each of us here this morning would know the Lord of Christmas and love 
the Lord of Christmas. For he has shown that he is worthy of our love and our worship. Let's pray. Father, we simply thank you for the gift of your Son. For each of us here would still be walking in darkness if not for Jesus. We would still be bound by sin. We would still be in misery, enslaved to our lusts and our evil desires. We thank you for your Son, our Savior, our great Deliverer. And we pray that you would help us to love him all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.